What's up, everyone? It's time for the With a Bullet podcast. Per usual, I'm here with my brother, Matt Golden, whose nickname when we were kids was the Silver Dragon. <laughs> I'm Ty Golden. My nickname when we were kids was the Blue Hawk. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's 100% accurate there. <laughs> Absolutely. What's going on? Merry Christmas. Not a whole lot. Um, it's a couple days before Christmas. Um, yeah, I just said Merry next... Christmas. Were you listening? I'm sorry. Yeah, Merry Christmas! <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> no, Merry Christmas. Um, have the next few days off, so um, I don't have to go to work tomorrow, obviously. Are you going to go <laughs> so... skating on Lake Mendota? Um, Lake Mendota is not actually frozen. It was actually in the 50s today here. That doesn't mean you can't go ice skating. I mean, you could go out there and try. You just would drown. Well, I mean, I could swim, <laughs> I guess. No. I, might, I might get hypothermia, but well, I could As long as you have skates swim. on, I suppose that's okay. But <laughs> So, anyway. Uh, oh, yeah, I chose this chart, didn't I? Um, yeah, you did. <laughs> we chose uh, the Hot 100 from December 27th, 1969. And um, this is the last chart of the 60s, which neither one of us will yeah. live for. Yeah, that's true. So the 1969 man landed on the moon and um, some other stuff happened. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Just other things. We we landed on the moon. and But this is long after that, because that took place in July. So we're in December 1969. Um, the, I don't know what the hell was going on in the world. Vietnam was being protested. Yeah, I, I'm assuming like the NFL playoffs were going on. This would have been the year of the Vikings Chiefs Super Bowl. So you would have probably been lined up. It might have already happened because back then the Super Bowl didn't take maybe I don't know or the Super Bowl I, didn't take place. Super Bowl was probably in January. I, I mean, I'm assuming both. I mean, the lineup for the Super Bowl was already decided. It might have been, but I mean, even I remember when the Super Bowl was like in mid January. So um, yeah. Yeah, I think that it was like that for most of the 80s, actually. I, th I think the first one I remember watching was like in the middle of January. So you have that going for us. And um, the music in this is interesting. I was, you know, I, I scrapped this idea. I was going to propose this to you, but to pick like the song that looks backwards the most and the song that looks forwards the most. And I don't know. I um, mean, it, on my list, I'd scrapped it because when I started looking at it, I was like, I don't know if any of these songs are like completely like futuristic by the standards of 1969 or, or, um, you know, um, out of date. So they're of their time, which, uh, pretty much 1969 yeah. is weird because it's part of the sixties. Um, but it's almost like it belongs to a period. We see, we, we compartmentalize all these things into decades, which is dumb because, you know, the seventies, probably didn't really start until 71 or 72 stylistically and and the 80s probably didn't end until like 1991ish you know in terms of sound and all of that and yeah. i think that's sort of true here too because like from maybe mid 68 to 
through 1970 was a distinct form of music, both in terms of soul, R&B, rock, and then it changed. I think part of it is because recording became better. Like if you listen to an album right. from 1969 versus an album for like take the who, for example, I, I don't think they're on this chart, but just use them as an example. Tommy sound does not, is not a sonically great album. Whereas right. uh, who's next is. So I think that had something to do with it. You know, I don't know. I'm talking out of my mind. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but it was, it's a good chart and let's, uh, we should probably get started. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, first for you at number 40 is pointed out by Smokey Robinson and the miracles. This uh, lesser known miracle single wasn't really that big of a hit on this chart. It only made um, three spots higher than this. It's a little bit funkier than anything they'd done up to this point. It's not like James Brown or anything. Um, it's not as funky as their label mates, the Temptations were at the time, but it's funky by the Miracle standards. Um, it has a pretty good groove to it. I've never heard this one before, but it's pretty good. Um, I did find one video of this on YouTube, and it's not a live performance. It was just like a pan out of a picture of a packet of Top Ramen. And I don't know what the hell this has to do with Top Ramen, but I, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, so I'll have to give a hand to whoever made that video, but uh, this is pretty decent. So maybe Smokey yeah. Robinson liked Top Ramen. Uh, could be, could be, could be, could may may have been like endorsing Top Ramen there. <laughs> could be. Yeah, uh, but thirty nine for you is Jimmy Cliff with "Wonderful World, Beautiful People." <clears throat> is the world really wonderful? And if it is, does it have beautiful people in it? What if it's shitty world and ugly people? I mean, <laughs> Jimmy Cliff could have could have sung that. Now this is uh, it's. I think it's kind of forgotten that Jimmy Cliff came before Bob Marley. Um, it shouldn't be because uh, the harder they come, essentially, was the world's sort of gateway drug to reggae, or so they say. I mean, I can't imagine like you know. I know that's a good movie. I enjoy it because I can enjoy the influence of it. I can't imagine that was like on the lips of everybody in 1972, but nonetheless, it did create the kind of kick down the door for the seventies reggae sound that we know, but Jimmy Cliff was more rock steady than reggae. If you know the difference, Um, you know, it still sounds like it's from Jamaica, but it's definitely more upbeat then like Bob Marley would and not that, Bob, but I mean, Bob Marley could be upbeat, but he also could be downcast in his songs. Whereas Jimmy Cliff, even what, even the song that came after this Vietnam, which actually has a pretty serious theme to it though, but it still sounds like you're at a, like a Jamaican party when you hear it. So, and that goes for this song too, wonderful world, beautiful people. And it's uh, it's more of a groove than anything else. And it's pretty, pretty good. I like it. So Toots and the Mayfalls yeah. did much the yeah. same. Um, they would, co- they were, I think they're like the bridge between Jimmy Cliff and Bob Marley in a way. But um, anyway, Jimmy Cliff though had several hits in the early seventies that um, I don't know that they've been forgotten about, but they, you hear what well, Bob Marley pioneered reggae and it's like, well, he, he, he did, but, but there were others there before him that were kind of laying the groundwork. And Jimmy Cliff is one of them. And of course, Jimmy Cliff is still around and uh-huh. uh, became an actor 
and um and uh you know probably his i'm trying to think of that that resort movie he did with robin williams in the 80s which is really lousy oh god oh god was it club paradise yeah club like paradise, which is clearly much more of a cinematic achievement than the harder they come so <laughs> he's actually really good in the harder they come as an actor like he's actually legitimately good in that movie right yeah yeah, yeah, you're right about that. I think that movie is quite good, which yeah. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really in that breaking a lot of ground and saying that because that's pretty much what it's famous <laughs> for. So, but yeah, but if you've never seen that movie, I mean, the storyline can be a little, you know, it's a '70s movie, so you know, be prepared for that. But definitely, the music is legit. So. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Also, right there with it in terms of influence is your song at number 38, Groovy Grub Worm by Harlow Wilcox and the Okies. Um, we, had a, we had a funky worm on our previous episode, and now we have the Groovy Grub Worm. Yeah, you get all the worms. Um, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> but um, this is an instrumental. It sounds similar to what Dwayne Eddy was doing in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, prominently features a percussion instrument called a giro or a guiro. It has kind of a scraping sound. It's used to represent the groovy grub worm in the song. Um, this was Wilcox's only hit. He was a um, country session guitarist from Oklahoma. Um, he actually followed this up with a song that kind of um, more or less was a copy of this called Cripple Cricket, which was pretty much this but he added cowbell to it that was it um but this was also nominated for a grammy and it sold a million copies in 1969 Mm. so yeah see i originally (laughs) had like when i was researching what chart to do i had considered the chart the week before this and this would have been one of my songs and so i listened to it and i'm like because i'd never heard it before and um I don't really know where I'm going with that, but it was okay. You know, I mean, it was, but it's like one of those relics that would not happen today. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's more or less a novelty song. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, but um, 37 is not a novelty song. It's um, Friends of Distinction with Going in Circles. The uh, The Friends of Distinction, their biggest hit is Grazing in the Grass, which is these days kind of held up as a cliche of the turn of the 60s, early 70s with Afro soul and psychedelic, you know, uh, imagery. It's used in a lot of movies to represent that period. Um, And it's a good song. Um, It's fun. Um, But this song is a much different tone if you're not familiar with it. It's uh, dominated by a string section. And strings are really, if you think about it, there's a lot of songs on this chart that have strings as their basis. But um, and it has dissonant horns in it. Um, it's a slow one, but it's also a really cool one. Um, it's probably my favorite by the Friends of Distinction, who had a pretty short shelf life. All three of their big hits uh, were released within a year of one another in 1969 and 70. This was the sandwich between um, Grazing in the Grass and Love or Let Me Be Lonely, which came out in 1970. But um, the Friends, uh-huh. it's kind of famous. They were discovered by... Uh, Jim Brown during his uh, transition from being a football player to being an actor in Hollywood uh, empresario back in the late sixties. And uh, Jim Brown also discovered earth, wind and fire. So um, 
he's had an influence on football, acting, and music. Quite a quite a story for uh, Jim Brown. Oh yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But the, I like this song. It's cool. It has a cool mood to it, um, and uh, you know, I dig it. To use the parlance of the time. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's a yeah, it's a great Stone song. Groove. Yeah. I, I, I should not attempt to use '60s lingo because I'm not good at it. <laughs> right yeah, it's, exactly. it's part of my scene yes yes it, it, it's your happening happening and it's freaking you it out. it is my happening and it is freaking me out and because it is i'm going to move on to the next song number 36 <laughs> ain't it funky now part one by james brown this one might as well be an instrumental um really the only words in this song are james saying ain't it funky now and like occasional instructions to his backing band. Um, a lot of James Brown singles from this time period were pretty similar to that. Um, this one's a little simpler. Um, the full band never really comes in. Um, it's just a repeated trumpet riff uh, with like barely audible jangly guitar under it. Um, but um, it is as funky as like funky drummer, sex machine, hot pants, get off of, the, off of that thing and so on. Um, ain't it funky? Yes, it is. Yeah, and this one's great too. And a lot of his stuff from this time period was great. This was kind of his golden age. Yeah, it was. I mean, so. I'm actually surprised how many of his songs charted from this period because, um, you know, because probably because radio stations are racist. You know, you don't hear a lot of these James Brown songs on like oldies radio. You you do hear them on like oldies R and B radio, but <clears throat> you know, you got to seek that kind of station out. So you forget that some of these songs were legitimate hits and they probably didn't get much out of the top 30, but, um, but they did get there. And of course, Th- this one peaked at 24. It was a top five in the RB yeah. charts. And then so, he did have some so. bigger hits, you know, like hot pants was a big, big hit, you know, a couple years later, but um, you know, it's uh, interesting to me that some of these songs that you hardly ever hear anymore did make the top 40. So. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and, I mean, James Brown, I mean, pretty much all you hear from him on oldies radios, like Papa's got a brand new bag and um, um, I feel good, but really, really not even Papa's brand new bag that often. They should really play King heroin all the time. That's the one they should play. That's yeah. a great song. Yeah. I'm not even joking. That's, I mean, I I know an oldie station isn't going to play that, but that that's a cool <laughs> song. I, it's uh, it, it is, but I mean, I can't imagine that one ever getting played on the radio. <clears throat> well, fine. I'll start but, my own radio station then and play my own shit. You should do that. Should you do should that. do that. I'm going to go <laughs> storm somebody's tower here in the greater Terre Haute area. <laughs> right uh, but uh 35 for you we have oliver with uh, sunday morning. yeah this is a skip this sounds like proto david cassidy and that is not a compliment um oliver's <laughs> biggest hit from earlier in 69 was good morning sunshine and i hate that song with every fiber of my being i really do <laughs> so, yeah and it's like it's it's just off-putting 
it's just yeah, don't get me started. Anyway, number thirty-four for you. I, I, Go ahead. Okay. No, okay. what were you gonna say? I, I I will say that his version of that song is better than the version from Hair, um, which I had to listen to twice because I had that album twice. <laughs> Why did you listen to it? I wouldn't have listened to it. I would have just like I, hit the highlight. I I don't know. I, I shouldn't have done that. I I don't know. <laughs> anyway, next for you, number thirty-four is "She" by Tommy James and the Shondells. Uh, this is my first skip. Um, I, I like Tommy James and the Shondells, but this song's not that great. So. There's not many. Kiss has a song named "She" and it sucks. Somebody else has a song named "She" that's not very good either. Oh, I'm thinking of the Beatles. Um, girl, I see. I don't like "Girl" by the Beatles. Isn't that a rubber? Yeah, girl, girl kind of stinks. I, I yeah, don't like it. some people do like it though, which that's kind of how the world works. Where people, some people like stuff and some people don't. So I guess that stands to reason. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> but speaking of the Beatles, um, at number thirty-three, we have the Plastic Ono Band with Cold Turkey. No one in December of nineteen sixty-nine had any idea that the Beatles were basically already done as a functioning unit by this point, uh, and they wouldn't know because later on we actually have a Beatles song in this chart, but. Um, Cold Turkey proves that the appetite for Beatles-related music was very, very far away from waning. Um, this song actually peaked at number 30, and looking back, I don't know that anyone would anyone would guess, I certainly wouldn't, that this would have actually been a single. I, I actually didn't know that, um, much less a top 40 hit, because it's not accessible in any way. Um, so, you know, that kind of surprised me a little bit. It, I, I don't know how I feel about this song and it's much the same as the Beatles song I will talk about later I mean the guitar in it is really good and Eric Clapton played on it as well to help John Lennon out um, I don't know but the rest of it is kind of ponderous to me I mean I, I just the, the John Lennon kind of psychedelic guitar workouts um, don't do it for me very much what about you I, I mean, I don't mind it. I mean, I, mind it. I like I mean, the. I don't like love it. I guess is what I'm saying. See, well, I mean, the first Plastic Ono band album, which this one wasn't on, but it kind of sounds similar to it, is actually really good. I do like that one quite a bit. Um, this song, I mean, I'm not really that big of a fan of it. I mean, it's kind of surprising that like a song that was almost entirely about withdrawing from making it on the but... charts. That segues into our Wikipedia fun fact of the week, sponsored by When in Doubt, Go With Drugs. Quote, according to Peter Brown in his book, The Love You Make, the song was written in a creative outburst following Lennon and Yoko Ono going cold turkey from their brief heroin addictions. However, Lennon's personal assistant in the late 70s, Fred Seaman, claimed otherwise, stating that Lennon confided in him that the song was actually about a severe case of food poisoning suffered by John and Yoko after eating Christmas leftovers cold turkey. Lennon thought people would laugh at him if they knew the truth about the song's origin, so he said it was inspired by his recent heroin withdrawal. The truth comes out. Oh, God. It's not about heroin. It's about actually, it's actually about turkey, literally. <laughs> I'm not making that up. That's, that's, that's a real quote. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So, 
yeah. John Lennon had it over on everybody and he just decided to, I mean, it's another adage that, you know, drugs are cool, basically, is what John Lennon is saying. He's like, well, <laughs> I can't really blame this on food poisoning because that's lame. So I'm going to blame it on on um, skag because skag is really cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but yeah. So there's the rest of the story. This is your weekly edition of the Paul Harvey show. Okay. 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 So <laughs> anyway, you got another Beatles reference coming up. Number 32, Eleanor Rigby by Aretha Franklin. Uh, this is a skip. It was between this and another like soul cover later on in the chart. And I chose to go with the other one. So I'm skipping. I, I've this never, one. I've never been into this song by Aretha. I gotta be honest. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really match up the tone of the Beatles version. Yeah. that's. I mean, that's what I'll say about this I one. I mean, it's sung well. Of course it is, because it's Aretha Franklin. But, you know, I just, I don't know. It doesn't do it for me. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but 31 for you is The Grassroots with Heaven Knows. This is a skip. It is a complete ripoff of Soul Deep by the Box Tops, complete with the shifts in tempo mid-verse that they do in Soul Deep. Which means it is listenable, but it's 0% original. Seriously, go listen to it. It's like Soul Deep remade, basically. Yeah, yeah, I, I did listen to this one, and you are right about that. And, and it's so. not Robert Plant's Heaven Knows, which is another strike against it. <laughs> yeah. When he was into his, uh, that was on the Now and Zen album, I believe, when he was like... It, it was, Eastern, yeah. Eastern yeah. imagery and whatnot, so... Um, yeah, moving right along next for you, number 30 early in the morning by Vanity Fair. I, I was surprised that these guys had a second hit. I mean, I'd only ever heard Hitching a Ride before. Um, that one's an oldie staple, it's used as a jingle for a car dealership here in Madison. Um, you hear it a lot, um, because that song is bubblegum. Yeah, it's a great song. I just assume. Yeah, I, I just assume that these guys were like a manufactured band made out of um, studio musicians like Ohio Express or Edison Lighthouse and so on. Um, and it was just like a one-off single. Um, but they weren't that at all. They were an actual group. Um, but this one's quite a bit different than Hitching a Ride. It's um, sunshine pop with like some broke elements to it. There's a very... Um, prominent harpsichord on it it's kind of old timey sounding too um it reminds me a little bit of mary hopkins um those were the days has kind of a similar feel to that Barth. um go on you don't like that no, song okay 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 I've, and it was also written by a guy who did have a connection to the beatles um like mary hopkins did she was on apple um, Mike Leander wrote this and he did the orchestral arrangements for um, She's Leaving Home on Sgt. Pepper's and he also went on to write most of Gary Glitter's uh, big hits so <laughs> oh boy uh, well, at least so, he, so there is a at least he's getting... so there's a connection go ahead what? so there is a connection between uh, the Beatles and Gary Glitter well, at least he's but... getting the songwriting credit not Gary Glitter yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, but, I mean, this one isn't that bad. I mean, I 
prefer Hitching a Ride to this one, but I mean, um, kind of interesting that they did go in a different direction and that they weren't just like a one-off bubblegum band. So I detected a diss of the Ohio Express in your intro, and I don't like that because the Ohio Express kick ass. No, I like the Ohio Express. Damn. No, no. It wasn't a diss at all. Silver Falcon, you better not be dissing. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, does that lead us to your <laughs> to Silver Falcon's long distance dedication this week? I, I I thought it was the Silver Dragon. No, Silver Falcon, <laughs> and I'm the Blue Hawk. Don't you remember? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Cool. Yes. Um. Let's see. Yeah, it does lead to my long distance dedication. Um, at number 78, we have the Turtles with Lady O. Um, this was one of the Turtles' last appearances on the Hot 100, and this was its peak on the chart. The reason I'm picking it is that it was the only song written by cult singer-songwriter Judy Sill um, to ever make the Billboard charts. Um, she never made it on her own, and I'm a big fan of hers, um, so this gives me a chance to talk about her. Um, Judy had a pretty rough life, uh, drugs, prostitution, uh, various stints in jail, stuff like that. In her last stint, she learned how to play guitar, and she resolved to devote um, her life to music once she got out. And she was discovered by the Turtles, who hired her as a songwriter. Um, she wrote this one for them, obviously. Um, they broke up a little bit after this, but that association kind of introduced her to of the Laurel Canyon crowd in LA. So she was in the same social circles as Crosby, Stills and Nash, Joni E. Mitchell, stuff like people like them. Um, she was pretty highly regarded in that scene. And um, she ended up getting signed to Asylum Records by David Geffen. Um, supposedly she was like the very first singer signed to that label and later became the home to the Eagles, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt and so on. It was basically the label of the L.A. sound. Um, but she definitely did not fit into that sound. Her su stuff is very orchestral and the lyrics are kind of overtly Christian. But at the same time, it's also kind of similar to Joni Mitchell or Carole King. Uh, without the religious overtone, she probably could have had a few hits on her own, but that wasn't to be. Um, she only put out two albums in her lifetime, which are both awesome, but she ended up getting dropped in large part because um, she outed David Geffen um, at one of her shows. But after that, um, she kind of went back to drugs and died in obscurity a few later, few years later. Um, she was more or less forgotten until she was rediscovered in the early 2000s, which was when I found out about her. Um, I was more familiar with her version of this song, uh, but the Turtles did a pretty good job with this one. It's almost a carbon copy. I will say that the strings are better on Sill's version, but this one is still pretty great. Um, um, she's definitely worth checking out. I mean, both of her albums, um, her self-titled album and um, Heart Food, which came after that, are both really good albums. So I'll just send this one out to her. Um, I was actually looking to see if like Mountain was on the chart today because um, Leslie West um, died today. So I was going to 
possibly do one for him too. Hmm. But I didn't know that. Uh, they weren't. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, um, great album. I mean, she put out on two good albums. That song's "Lady O's a great song. So yeah. Well, this is <laughs> creating a theme that you didn't even know about because I will be paying tribute to a different female artist on my long distance dedication. Okay. Okay. We're giving it up for the ladies okay. this week. Yes. Yes. Made good music. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, number twenty nine for you is uh, the Fifth Dimension with Wedding Bell Blues. I like this song quite a bit, even while acknowledging that the woman in the song needs to quit whining. But I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point of the song. Um, in my own life, I kind of basically lived the life of Bill in this song. I, when I used to hear this song in the late 90s before I proposed to my now wife, um, it had a lot of resonance because um, it took me a little bit longer to pull the trigger on uh, proposing than my wife would have cared for at the time. So um, so I would hear Wedding Bell Blues and I'd be like, oh, shit, okay. Somebody's trying to tell me something like. <laughs> so, so I can identify with the bill and the, and the protagonist in the song, I guess too. So, although I did ask Kathleen today, if when I speak, uh, it sounds like uh, um, a chorus of carousels, which would actually be pretty terrifying. If you think about it, that would not be good. <laughs> I wouldn't want, I mean, she said no. And I'm glad she did because. I don't want my voice to sound like a chorus of carousels. That's fucking frightening. Yeah, pretty much. You know, I don't or Calliope or I don't, I don't know. Calliope has nothing to do with it. But um, the Ed Sullivan show footage of this is funny because they actually play act the song. Like they have Marilyn McCoo in like a wedding dress and the rest of the fifth dimension are like a wedding party. And then it gets wacky at the end because she runs off with the best man or something and it's crazy wacky variety show stuff um not quite as good as the ed sullivan show footage of up up and away which is cool as hell because it looks like they're trying to initiate you into a cult and it's like and it, well, okay. I mean, not really, but i mean it's like this this far off distant and they shoot it from like really deep and so you can see the whole studio and the whole set and it reminds me of like a sergio mendez album cover or something where they're like leading you into the, like their whole scene and all that and it's it's kind of cool I, I liked it um whereas yeah, Soul yeah. picnic is kind of in the middle between the two in the coolness scale on the ed sullivan show scale so yeah kind of yeah the, a delight I, I, of this is there were some not all but not many but some ed sullivan show clips that you could find of these songs and they're always entertaining Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I had I had a few on my Actually, list. Miss it. List miss, too, they used to show so. the Ed Sullivan show in reruns on some you know, it was in syndication on some local channel for a while. I actually halfway enjoyed watching that. It was so what what people our age don't understand about the Ed Sullivan show is I mean, they were jumping like doing like ten acts a show or at least. And they were it was like whiz bang all over the place. You know, uh, just had, you know, uh, the fifth dimension. Now we're going to have basically Red Panda. You know, I mean, like the 60s equivalent of Red Panda would be on there. Do you know okay. who Red Panda They're like a halftime show. Okay. No. They're, they're, they're a, um, 
I believe they're from Ch- they're originally from China, and they do like they do plate spinning and stuff like that at um, like halftime shows. So oh, okay, kind of thing, okay. You know, and it's just like, but it was like lightning quick. I mean, it they didn't like segue or anything like that. It was random, so kind of <laughs> archaic. But I kind of actually halfway enjoyed watching that. Even even acknowledging also that it was also old fashioned e too. So Right, yeah. But yeah. Anyway, number twenty eight for you is Evil Woman, Don't Play Your Games With Me by Crow. This is a skip. It sounds quite a bit like blood, sweat and uh blood, sweat and sweat and oh, tears. Um really the only thing notable about this is that Black Sabbath covered it. Um, that's pretty much all you can say about it. Is this by so. Crow from uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000? Yes, <laughs> yes it is. All right. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, but 27 for you is Dusty Springfield with a brand I'm new I'm skipping meet. this. There's nothing wrong with it. It's basically baseline Dusty Springfield, but a skip had to be made. So it was made. Okay. Next up for you, one of my favorites of all time, number 26 is Up on Cripple Creek by the band. Um, We're getting funky here, but it's a different type of funky than James Brown's Ain't It Funky. It's Swamp Funk. Um, Most obvious thing that makes it that is Garth Hudson's Funky Clavinet, which sounds like a Jew's harp or frog's croaking. Um, This is one of the first big hits to use an electric clavinet. Um, ended up becoming a standard feature of 70s funk. But Hudson isn't the only one getting funky here. Um, Levon Helm and um, Rick Danko are doing their best to make it funky on the drums and bass. Um, But the song tells the story of a guy getting in touch with his old flame Bessie back in Louisiana. Um, They go to the racetrack. They listen to Spike Jones. Um, She dips her donut in his tea. Hee-hee! Uh, you mentioned sound quality uh, for recordings kind of like in your intro and the sound quality on this is much better than any of the other songs on my list it's almost modern sounding or at least very state of the art for 1969 and that is like one of the most interesting things to me about this era era is just like the wide range of recording quality I mean you get some stuff that sounds perfect like this and other stuff that sounded like it was probably recorded with like a rickety old reel to reel in a garage yeah, somewhere. Yeah, I do get that. But yeah, but this was their biggest hit. Um, one of only two top 40 singles that they ever had. Um, this was actually their only original song to hit the top 40. And it was like, it was also the opening song to their concert movie, um, The Last Waltz. Um, and actually, there are quite a few clips of them performing this song. The best one uh, was actually recorded from Big Pink right around the same time. Uh, just kind of them like sitting in the garage of Big Pink kind of playing this. Um, the Last Waltz one isn't as great because they focus on Robbie Robertson yeah, too much. Yeah, I don't like the one from the last. And he's Waltz. not really doing much at all in this yeah. song. But, I mean, great song. The best, I mean, obviously, the band's The best great. live one I've heard is actually from the Ed Sullivan show. And the reason it's good is it's not because it's any better than any of the other live recordings, but the sound actually, they have trouble, like, within the show, they're having trouble with the sound. 
and then it kicks in like maybe a third of the way in and it kicks in right when uh garth hudson plays clavinet on this right he does yeah, so yeah. yeah it kicks in right in the middle of one of his clavinet um you know flourishes and it sounds that makes it sound even cooler because it kicks in with that clavinet and it's like immediately just funky as hell. I was like, wow, wow, oh, wow, wow. And I was like, oh, that is fucking awesome. So it's a perfect song, though. I mean, yeah. I love it for multiple reasons. The lyrics in it are um, entertaining and and the clavinet, because I love the clavinet. It's one of my favorite instruments. So um, I, for years, I thought it was actually a guitar because I'm an idiot and don't know music. But um, I was like, God, how did they do that? And then I finally realize it's actually a clavinet and then i was even more mind blown because i'm like oh shit that's the same thing from like superstition and um so yeah it's a great song band has the band is kind of all over the place i have this album and it is a really good it's a really good album but there they were there were some songs though you listen to by the band and they're just like not unlistenable but they're you know just they had a wide degree of quality in their songs i think yeah, you're kind of right about that. I mean, they were, I mean, they kind of tried a little bit of everything. Yeah, sometimes it worked. I mean, they were great part. musicians, obviously. I mean, they played with uh, Bob Dylan before they were the band and all that. So, um, so they obviously right. could play, but um, so, yeah. But this is my favorite, one of my favorite songs ever. Forget the band. It's actually one of my favorite songs, period. So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, a, I, I would rate it that high but i mean it is a really well, great silver, song, silver falcon so. blue hawk says it's one of the best songs ever so why don't you put that in your pipe and smoke it in your falcon <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, but number 25 for you is the originals with baby i'm this for is Real. a great song i mean the tail end of the 60s soul ballads have that cool and some of it is the sonic difference that you're talking about, but they have that cool champagne soul vibe to them. Usually the vocals are taken way up in the mix. Uh, they usually have spare strings and maybe a horn or two for accent. Um, and this song is definitely in that it's, you know, slow ballad make out song from the late sixties. But unfortunately the originals were really just pawns in a greater design. And that's what this song was actually all about. Um, the originals were with Motown for quite a while, but they were basically background vocalists. They were sort of the funk brothers of some of the background vocals that were done on Motown recordings. They did record in their own right, but they didn't have any hits. Um, at the same time, Marvin Gaye was fighting for artistic independence from Barry Gordy, um, who at that point still held sway over everybody at Motown, except for really Smokey Robinson at that point. Uh, Stevie Wonder was fighting a similar battle. And so Gay, in his iconoclastic way, decided to take a little bit different tack rather than fighting directly. He decided to produce this song for the originals. Um, and he produced it to prove to Gordy that he could make hits in his own right, in his own way. Um, and this song, I don't know where it peaked. Well, it peaked at 14 because it's on its way down the chart this week. Um and uh, Gay put his independence until he recorded What's Going On, which was uh, recorded in 1970, but released in 1971. Um, however, the originals, once Gay got his point across and basically were, you know, but he didn't necessarily use them on purpose, but 
kind of did. Um, they faded ba- basically back into obscurity. So, um, so in a way, I guess it was a symbiotic relationship. They got their hit. Gay made his point and eventually did get his. So thank God he did because uh, he was, as I've said before, one of the most original artists of the seventies. So, so that's kind of the background of this song, but it is a good, it, right, it's yeah. a straight up good. It has multi, you know, all the original. It's not doo-wop, but it brought back the multi-vocalist. Well, I can't say that because the Temptations were doing that at the time. So maybe not. But anyway, it's a good song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of the inter-politics of Motown. Motown had a lot of politics. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I have like one instance of that coming up later. Yeah. So. Uh, next up for you, number 24, Smile a Little Smile for Me by The Flying Machine. Um, one hit wonder one, um, bubblegum group from the UK. Um, like Vanity Fair, I thought these guys were a one-off studio creation, but they weren't. They evolved out of a band called Pinkerton's Assorted Colors, <laughs> um, which had which had one hit in the UK in the mid '60s called Mirror Mirror, which was um, a Holly's sound alike, and then they had a bunch of lineup changes, which. Featured stints by future members of Judas Priest and Jigsaw. Um, but by the time uh, Flying Machine came around, both of those guys were gone. Um, they changed their name to Flying Machine, which was probably a better name than Pinkerton's Assorted Colors. But really, either one of those names would have worked for Bubblegum. The, this song was written by um, Tony McCauley and Jeff Stevens, who were pretty big songwriters in the UK at the time. Uh, Macaulay wrote uh, Build Me Up Buttercup and Love Girls Where My Rosemary Goes. Um, Stevens Stevens wrote Winchester Cathedral. And a couple of years after this, he wrote um, Play All the Way for Leeds United. Oh, nice. um, (laughs) Yes. That that cheers me up. Leeds had a rough weekend last week. Yes, um, but this one's okay as far as UK bubblegum goes. Um, probably actually sounds closer to early Bee Gees than actual bubblegum. Um, both Macaulay and Stevens wrote better examples of, of bubblegum, but um, this one's pleasant, I guess. And this one did have an actual video. Um, the Flying Machine are just playing in front of like an all-white background. Um, so it looks kind of like a typical video from the early days of MTV, but it was like 12 years before MTV was around. So um, Flying Machine were ahead of their time, I guess. Um, but this was their only top 40 hit in the U.S. and Canada. Um, or this was their only hit in U.S. and the U.S. and Canada. It wasn't a hit in the U.K., but when you factor in... Um, um, Pinkerton's Assorted Colors, which was a one-hit wonder just in the UK. Um, they were one-hit wonders with two different names, with two different songs on both sides of the Atlantic, which is probably a rare feat. I mean, I can't think of anybody else who did that, but um, The Flying Machine and Pinkerton's Assorted Colors did. Yeah. So, I mean, 
I like the song a lot. I actually think the uh, that's a I think it's a French horn solo in the middle of it. I think that's cool. It sounds very, it very is of its yeah. time. A lot of British that never really was a thing in America, but a lot of British pop bands use that sound. It makes the British kind of versions of like the Wrecking Crew type stuff sound distinct. Um, so that's one thing I like about it. The, what was the name of their original? The Pinkertons what? Pinkerton's assorted colors. It sounds colors. like the contrabulous frabtraption of Professor Professor Horatio Huffnagel from The Simpsons. It, it does. That's what I'm going to my band yeah. if I, when I have one. The contra the contrabulous frabtraption of Professor. I can't even say it. Horatio Huffnagel. And then the Flying Machine confuses me because James Taylor was also in a band called the Flying Machine, but it was a different Flying Machines. But for many. years, that is I right. Thought this yeah. was James Taylor, yep. actually, because I knew I read oh, somewhere okay. that he was in a band huh. called The Flying Machine, and thought it was the same, you know, because the other flying the the band that James Taylor was in never really had any hits that I know of. Um, right. I I don't even think they put out an album. Right. So I always day. assumed this was like James Taylor's um, like launch into stardom, but I was. <laughs> but you're gonna be blown away by the other discovery i made in this chart because it's just it blew my mind and i feel stupid but it's it'll be coming up later okay okay i'll have to watch oh, out for that you'll but, know it okay all right uh but 23 for you is elvis with don't cry daddy slash rubber we are in. knee deep in comeback elvis which is my favorite elvis period Elvis was in the middle of a run of these singles in the ghetto, clean up your own backyard, suspicious minds, this pairing. And then my favorite Elvis song, Kentucky rain was after this. That is an impressive run. Um, basically from the start of 1969 yep. into 1970. Don't cry. Daddy was written by Mac Davis and it's easily the worst of all the above mentioned songs. Um, Mac Davis is weird. I, I don't really have much use for him as a singer at all. Um, he did write some, good songs including um uh stop look and listen by elvis and in the ghetto um but his acting in north dallas 40 when he played the quarterback was legit he like nailed that he he seriously <laughs> he, he did a really good job in that movie it was perfect but um rubbernecking the other half of this single on the other hand is a great song um really good ass up tempo elvis the sweet inspirations are very prominent in it uh, providing some kick-ass background vocals. That is peak comeback Elvis stuff, uh, rubbernecking is. So um, so you get a little bit of the yin and the yang of Elvis in this period. The Don't Cry Daddy is more the ballady Elvis that I could have done without. But rubbernecking is the up-tempo, cool Elvis that, um, you know, that I like to listen to. So would you agree, right. Silver yeah. Falcon? Yes, yes, I would, Blue right. Hawk. <laughs> Next up for you, ooh, Bubblegum. Number 22, Jingle Jangle by the Archies. Yes, um, coming to us this week from the rock hotbed of Riverdale, yep. uh, we have Archie Andrews on guitar, uh, Reggie Mantle on bass, Jughead Jones on drums, Veronica Lodge on organ, and on lead vocals and tambourine on this one, we have Betty Cooper. Um, actually, uh, they were just a bunch of New York-based studio musicians. Um, Tony Wine singing here, not Betty Cooper. Um, 
the other real Archies included songwriters Jeff Berry and Andy Kim, uh, vocalist Ron Dante, um, Hugh McCracken, who played guitar on practically every other album that came out in the 70s, and Chuck Rainey, who played bass for Steely Dan, um, among many others. Um, the creation of, of the Archies, the band, was inspired by the success of the Monkees. Um, the creators of the Archie comics, I thought, um, you know, hey, if there's a band made up for a TV show that's doing this well, maybe we could do the same thing with a fake bandit or a comic book. And they had good timing with that thought, because right around the same time, uh, the Monkees were kind of rebelling against their handlers, especially against their musical supervisor, Don Kirshner. And they wanted to play their own instruments, and they weren't happy with some of the material that Kirshner was giving to them. Um, supposedly, one of the songs they were upset about was Sugar Sugar. Uh, but eventually, the Monkees got their way, and Kirshner got booted out. But um, enter Archie, Betty, Veronica, and Jughead. Um, comic book co characters aren't going to complain about having to play Sugar Sugar. And the arrangement ended up working out pretty well for the creators of Archie and Don Kirshner. Um, Sugar Sugar was the biggest hit of 1969, and as far as I'm concerned, it is the best bubblegum song, period. And this one is the follow-up to Sugar Sugar, and it's almost as good. It's a little bit more up-tempo. It has a very catchy na-na-na-na-na-na chorus. I mean, it's top-notch bubblegum. Um, top bubble um, doesn't really get that much better than this in bubblegum. But there's a video for this. I mean, obviously, Archie's was also a cartoon, so there's a cartoon video for this. And it's kind of a Peppy Le Pew-ish animated short of a sheepdog chasing a poodle around, which um, occasionally cuts to the Archie's playing this. It has absolutely nothing to do with the lyrics of the song. Um, but I mean, it was a scene, man. They would do Didn't have to do with the lyrics of the song. It was just part of the scene, hanging out with the Archies and Riverdale and shit. You know, you just yeah, yeah, exactly. Just chill out and roll with it, exactly. Right, and the name Jingle Jangle has actually popped up in the TV show Riverdale, um, which is like the dark version of Archies, um, and it's slang for drugs on that show because they they have they have drugs on that show because it's dark archie jesus christ <laughs> damn kids these days no i i'm not gonna argue with you about sugar, sugar being the best bubblegum song i mean it's hard to argue that i would say yummy 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 i got love in my tummy is like the core version of bubblegum because it's stripped down and i, I don't want to say it's raw but it's um you know, it's basically a beat with silly lyrics. I'm very partial to that. Although Sugar Sugar is a great, great song. I'm not dissing it at all. And the theme of the Banana Splits right. is great bubblegum music as well. Yeah, I'd, let's see. I'd put Quick Joey Small up there with that. Um, Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes I mean, would be in there. See, that's I'm going to get into this later with another song that's considered bubblegum that I I don't know if is I don't really consider Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes to be bubblegum. I mean, I guess it is. I mean, I can see it, but um, I don't know. I don't know why I feel that way, but that's a great song. 
I mean, okay. the Ohio Express yeah. songs, and it's coincidence because there was like a bazillion different people that recorded as the Ohio Express, including 10CC at one point. Um, the difference with them is, is yeah. almost all their songs actually rock. Like Mercy is a great song by the Ohio Express. That is a cool bubblegum song. Actually, your your right, next, yeah, your yeah, you're right about that. Is not a bad bubblegum song either, but um, so right. Bubblegum is something that's not easy to celebrate because it wasn't celebrated in its time. It was basically a commercial, um, you know, it was it was something that was commercial. It wasn't artistically. Um, organic. It was commercially organic, but I think a lot of that stuff is actually pretty good if you take it for what it is. You know, it's not the Beatles doing Abbey Road. It's just something enjoyable to listen to uh, when you hear it on the radio. So I, 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 oh, I enjoy yeah, Bubblegum yeah, on that level. And then yeah. when you actually listen to some of it, not all of it, but some of it, some of it, it there's a reason why punk bands liked Bubblegum because it does sound, you know, basically boils it down to its basic elements you know a guitar riff a, a beat and some lyrics so that's all you need pretty as much far as i'm concerned yeah. if yeah. it's good so that's why it's why a bubblegum right fan. yeah so yep see but 21 for you is billy joe royal with this Harry is a good Hill song Park. but i'm skipping it i had to skip something so which leads <laughs> okay. me into my long distance dedication which uh, we should have time for here. Um, number 53 this week is Fancy okay. by Bobby Gentry. And Gentry is definitely, without doubt, most famous for her amazing song, Ode to Billy Joe, which, is, which came out, I think, in 1967. Um, and that's all anybody really remembers about Bobby Gentry, um, which is a shame because she did a lot more quality work than that song. Um, and this, this song, Fancy, is, is one of them. Gentry was from Mississippi and she's kind of as much a part or she should be as much a part of the swamp rock tradition as anybody else who emerged from that scene, like Tony Joe White, um, you know, and a few others. Uh, and like some of those similar people who came out of that kind of Southern soul R and B swamp rock type stuff, she wrote pretty amazing songs. I kind of rediscovered or discovered Bobby Gentry beyond the obvious uh, Ode to Billy Joe when we, I was on my Wisconsin trip this past summer. Um, I was listening to satellite radio driving uh, with my son and I must have been on one of, I think I was on underground uh, underground garage or something, something where they play obscure stuff. And we're on a song called Casket uh -huh. Vignette, which is an astonishing song about picking out the funeral arrangements for Bobby Gentry's uh, beau or husband or boyfriend in the song. It's spoken from the point of view of the funeral director talking to her, giving her choices to pick out shit for the casket and like the, what kind, what color you want it to be and all that stuff. Um, but it has the same air of mystery to it as Ode to Billy Joe does, because you figure out through the narrator that Gentry is really ambivalent about all this. She's not showing any emotion She's not showing much interest at all. And it makes you wonder, is this like a war death? And she's numb. Did she actually kill the guy? Um, it's one of the best surprise songs I've ever heard on the radio. It just came out of nowhere. I was like, holy shit, that's really good. That song is very Baroque 
uh, the arrangement can be, it's interesting, but it's very, it can be kind of hard to get through. But I heard that song and I was like, damn, that was really good. I need to listen to more Bobby Gentry. So I threw it on. And when I was doing so, I came upon the fancy album that this song came from. And um, that album is a little bit less singer songwriter and a little bit more swamp rock muscle shoals kind of Southern soul type stuff. And fancy is in that vein. Um, The song is Gentry wrote it. It's about a girl becoming a prostitute to overcome poverty. And it's very gritty um, and uh, very honest uh, song. And it was recorded just as Tony Joe White songs of the same period were. It might have even been recorded by the same uh, musicians. Very spare in the verses. The background vocals kind of jump out out of nowhere at times. Uh, there's screeching strings. There's horns jumping in on the fills. It's really good stuff. Very funky, very southern, uh, very soulful. Um, that same album also features a song called He Made a Woman Out of Me, which she did not write, but it's a it's as great of a piece of funky swamp soul as you'll ever want to hear has several covers on it including i'll never fall in love again the back rack song um which was actually my backup song if you had picked this but for some reason um she also covered wedding bell blues which i talked about earlier and her version is a bit more world weary which was kind of her thing gentry was appreciated in her time but nobody knew really what to do with her i mean was she country was she rock was she an interpreter for other songwriters kind of like dm warwick was with Bacharach? You know, how marketable was she? She was very attractive. So she was basically marketed at sort of a sh- Southern Sean who, and they played up her good look. She was briefly recording with Glenn Campbell uh, around the time he had a TV show. Um, and the fancy album was actually re- nominated for a Grammy, um, but it was basically her last throw of the dice. She eventually fell out of the public eye because record companies didn't know what the hell to do with her. Um, and she wanted to assert her own independence and write her own songs. Her last album was all, I believe, all her own songs. Um, and since then, she's become a recluse. She has not even been interviewed by anybody since 1982. And for a long time, nobody knew where she lived. They figured out that she either lives in Memphis or Los Angeles. But um, her choice to live that way. But it's a criminal shame that she's only basically remembered for one song, because if you listen to some of her albums and they are available on like Spotify and all that. She wrote some really good songs, very interesting songs. And uh, so I'm dedicated this to one of the better, as you did, one of the better female writers and voices uh, I've uh, had the pleasure of listening to. She's really good. Yeah. Yeah, she is. And uh, go check out casket vignette. I mean, it's a dark song, but it's, that is, that is a really interesting the point the whole point of view of it is just interesting you know i never would have thought of it it drew me in yeah it sounds so, like it next up for you matt number 20 jam up and jelly tight by tommy Rowe. this was tommy's last big hit he had um two waves of success in the 60s and the first wave in the early 60s um he was more or less a del shannon type um he had a uh, Buddy Holly sounded like called Sheila, um, which was an oldie staple when oldies radio still existed. And when that song was at the top of the charts, he went over to England and uh, the Beatles were his opening act on that tour. Um, he's one of the few people who can say that the Beatles opened for him. Um, but there was a little bit of a lull after that. And um, he came back with a second wave in the mid to late 60s. 
um, where he was like the absolute best bubblegum singer there was. Um, Sleepy, um, Hooray for Hazel, Dizzy, um, just all Stone Cold bubblegum classics. Um, Roe wrote them all himself. Um, He essentially did what he did on Sheila and all of these, but he had a jangly guitar, Farfisa organs, and really big beats to flesh it all out. And all of them had extended drum breaks, which has led to him being sampled quite a few times by hip-hop artists over the years. And this song more or less follows the same formula as the other three big bubblegum hits. Um, The title for it comes from a Georgia expression um, that Tommy Rowe's dad used to say a lot when he was growing up. Um, Jam up a jelly tight means everything's all right, or if you're talking about a girl, it means that she's attractive. So it's like, hey, Tommy, how are you? Everything's jam up a jelly tight, or you see that girl over there? She's jam up a jelly tight. Um, This song uses a ladder meeting. It's about a girl that Tommy's trying to get with. Um, That's basically it. Um, This one doesn't really do as much for me as his other three big bubble gum hits. It's not as in your face as the other three. Um, Maybe he was running out of juice at this point. Who knows? I mean, it's not bad. I mean, I still like this one. Oh, but, I like it. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing um, about... Go ahead. But, I mean, it was still a pretty big hit, but, I mean, um, he kind of disappeared from the top 40 after this, later became a country artist in the 80s and had some success on the country charts, but, um, I mean, this is basically what he's known for, so... Right. A couple things. First of all, I think he made that up because the whole backstory of jam up and jelly tight because one of the other great things about bubblegum songs are the barely concealed innuendos that are inherent in a lot of them and you might as well just switch the two words around in this and just call it jelly up and jam it tight because that's what (laughs) yeah yeah that's what this song is more or less getting at and um and uh, i forget what my other point was but um so yeah but dizzy is a great song dizzy is that is one of the best bubblegum songs too right um, it's got actually cool... i mean his fav- my favorite of his is sweet pea sweet pea because is the good. drums also. on that is ri- drums on that are ridiculous so yeah sweet pea is also very good i agree but dizzy's yeah. got those cool like uh descending you know the whole dizzy strings thing in them too Oh yeah. And it also yeah. has a good it also has a good drum break in it. So I uh I, I approve of Dizzy. It's a cool song. It is. Yeah, yeah. At number nineteen for you we have the shocking blue of Venus. Straight out of Holland. That's where yep. Shocking Blue is from. This was the golden age of Dutch rock, because you had the George Baker selection and Golden Earring, and that's it. It was the golden I, I think, age of I think the T set were also from oh the tea set you're right my bellamy yeah okay and um so, moth and mclean too i don't know who that is um how do you do oh that song sucks anyway um <laughs> venus however is a pretty good song but this is my revelation i have to break it to everybody that i only discovered about two hours ago that venus is actually sung by a woman had no idea none yep mind blown um 
And I mean, in my defense, really how often do you delve into the history of shocking blue if you're my age? Not ever. So in doing the research for this, I was watching a video and they shot this video. I'll tell, tell you about that in a second. But um, so there's a very attractive brunette female singer. And I'm like, oh, well, they hired a model to lip sync the lyrics. That's very 60s of Shocking Blue. And then I go on to read more about the song. And no, she was the actual lead singer of the band. So had no idea. Never thought this was sung by a woman. Doesn't sound to me like a woman at all. Um, so I was pretty uh, blown away by that. And that woman, by the way, is lead singer Mariska Viras for the record. Um, uh-huh. The video takes place in a gorilla exhibit at a zoo somewhere, presumably in the land of the Dutch. And so shocking blue is in there like an indoor gorilla exhibit. And they're in there rocking out with Samson, basically Samson from <laughs> uh, the famous gorilla from the Milwaukee County zoo. And it looked exactly like Samson's uh, cage, which, I don't know if you were old enough. I don't know if they still have it or not. I haven't been to the Milwaukee County Zoo in ages, but they had an indoor gorilla enclosure and Hampton lived in it. It was like made out of, uh, um, you know, it was, it wasn't very big, honestly. And these days they have gorilla enclosures like that, but they go, you know, like you can go outside if you're the gorilla. Uh, Not in those days. Gorilla was like, you get this, basically a prison cell and that's what you live in take that yeah so for some reason shocking blue decided that'd be a cool place to film a video they weren't in the cage they were outside of it so the animal the gorilla was actually behind them like watching for a while okay. and then he got bored and took off like in the middle of it like when the guitar solo started so um the other thing about this song is is it was famously covered later in the 80s by Bananarama, and which version is better to me? I probably give the edge to Shocking Blue, but not by very much. I, I, I'd say that this one is clearly better. No, you're clearly that's, that's... Silver <laughs> Falcon. But but, um, but these guys had. I mean, there's a couple other great Shocking Blue songs too. There's um, Send Me a Postcard, which is kind of rock, like very hard rock song, which is really good and. Um, Love Buzz, which was later covered by Nirvana. So. I think the key is, and and I found this out when I when I watched that video, it was actually very high quality audio on it. And I think too many times I've heard bad quality audios of this song, like either on the radio, which isn't good quality audio, or just, I don't know where else I would have heard it. But it seemed like I got a good fidelity recording of it. And so the guitar came out a little punchier than it seems like it typically does to me so but so yeah so i had no idea that a woman sang this song you learn okay okay so yeah <laughs> next up for you number 18 backfield in motion by mel and tim um yeah classic pop soul track um melvin harden and tim mcpherson were cousins they were originally from Mississippi, but they later moved to Chicago, where they were discovered by Gene Chandler of Duke of Earl fame. And um, this song uses football metaphors to, admon- or to admonish uh, one of their girls for shaking her ass, cheating, and holding someone else. Or in other words, uh, backfield in motion, offsides and holding. And technically, backfield in motion is not against the rules. 
you are allowed to have one player in the backfield in motion before the snap, but they can't advance towards the line of scrimmage. They have to move parallel to the line or backwards, and they have to be in a set position before the ball is snapped. Um, Otherwise, if you, like, break any of that, yeah, it is backfield in motion. But, I mean, uh, also on this one, I'm going to have to – I mean, I'm going to have to penalize Mel and Tim for getting that wrong. I'm giving him five yards for that, but I'm also going to give him another 15 yards for mixing um, football and baseball metaphors in this song. I mean, you can't strike out in a football game and you can't balk in a football game. I mean, stick to one sport, guys. But, I mean, this is this is a good track, though. So I'll, I'll, that's give him, why, I'll give him that. That's why I love the Silver Falcon, because just when you least expect it, he suddenly becomes Mike Pereira from Fox Sports, breaking down football for you. Yes, yes. But you got to keep in mind that the football point I was going to make is that um, – in 1969, you mostly had backfields that had two, had a fullback and a halfback in it, which you don't have these days. So you were more likely, if you had both of them moving at the same time, if they screwed up, to get a backfield in motion penalty. You won't, wouldn't see that these days because you don't have two running backs. Yeah. Did I, I just I, blow I your mind? Right about that. Did I just yeah. blow your mind? Because that was the age of, you know, the fullback basically was still. Shit, it was as important as the halfback was back in those days. Or in your, you know, a lot of leading. Oh yeah, buck. yeah. You know, probably who's the last great fullback? Um, oh God, um, was Jerome Bettis technically a fullback? He was or? technically when he was with the Rams. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was a fullback. You're right. Because yeah, I who his running mate was with the Steelers in the nineties. Mike Allstott. Mike Allstott was the one I was trying to think of. William Henderson with the Packers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was around forever. Yeah, he was. But the fullback is... John Kuhn. John Kuhn. Yep, that's right. White boy hero for Wisconsin. But... um, Yeah. So, yeah, but that's... So, in a way, this captures a moment in football history where the fullback was was a big part of the offense. Right. Which I'm sure yeah, is what yeah. Mel and Tim had in mind when they wrote it. They were all about, <laughs> right. we have to get all these football references accurate. So when people listen to this in 2020, that, you know, they know that we knew our football. But then they screwed up and put <laughs> right. baseball references. Right. So. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to think. There's been plenty of songs that have used baseball metaphors. You got One on One by Hall & Oates, which uses basketball as a metaphor. You got right, the, which uses football, and um, so is there some sort of love song out there that uses like hockey as a metaphor? That would be hard. Oh God, um, I don't think so. The only, I mean, no, I, I can't think of any. I mean, the only hockey song I can even think of is um, the good old hockey game by Stompin' Tom Connors, <laughs> which is basically just about a hockey game. <laughs> so. I mean. The only soccer one I could think of, and this is arguable whether it's soccer or not, is You're In My Heart by Rod Stewart, which may not be. A yeah. Supposedly, that was written about the Scottish national team, um, and it does have soccer references in it, but I don't know that that's, you know, 
that's I'm reaching a little bit on that. And I'm not right, counting, yeah. I'm not counting songs that are specifically themed for, you know, sport like marching on together is clearly, you know, obviously that's about soccer, but, um, or, um, the, uh, um, brewer fever. Brewer fever. Yes. Brewer fever. Brewers keep turning up the heat. Yeah. Both those songs should have charted. Last... <laughs> yeah. Um, but... go ahead. Um, well, I was going to move on to the next one here. Um, Number 17, Gladys Knight and the Pips with Friendship Train. Here we have Gladys Knight and the Pips entering the world of Barrett Strong and Norman Whitfield. Hardcore, too. This sounds like it very easily could have been recorded by The Temptations, Edwin Starr, The Undisputed Truth, all of whom also entered that universe. Um, You know what you're getting with Barrett Strong type stuff. You're getting psychedelic guitar. You're getting lots of weird Norman Whitfield inspired sound effects. Um, You're getting funky stuff, funky Motown, which is good, which is good Motown. The problem with some of their, and I will criticize all the bands that recorded under sort of the Barrett's Whitfield banner is Barrett was very inconsistent as a lyricist. And, you know, some of those temptation songs don't hold up very well because they're corny and friendship train is kind of corny, you know, I mean, friendship train. I mean, that alone is corny, but it doesn't really matter because Gladys belts it out and the pips are in good form on this. It works. Um, and the clip I found of this is actually one of the oldest soul train clips I've ever found. Um, it's from 1970. It may have been when they were still recording soul train in Chicago. So um, has their old set, their original set on it. It was kind of cool. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but this was a big, this was a big song that you do not hear on the radio anymore. And when Gladys Knight and the Pips played live, this was a big part of their act because it's actually relative, you know, of course, because it's Norman Whitfield, Barrett Strong. It's a long song, too. So um, but they kind of played that up in their act and, you know, made a big deal out of it and stuff. So kind of a cool song. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I've ever heard this on the radio, but yeah, I don't I don't think I have either. Yeah. So but it's that level. I mean, seriously, they might have just grab the temptations out of uh, I can't get next to you session and literally put Gladys Knight and the pips in the room after they recorded the vocals and recorded with the same band. I th- it's sounds exactly like it. So. Right. Yeah. Anyway, next up for you, number 16, these eyes by junior Walker and the all-stars. Uh, everyone covered everything back in the sixties. So it's not really surprising that there'd be a Motown cover of a guess who song. Uh, which is what this is. Uh, the guests who were on the charts with this in the spring of 69, I mean, it was their first big hit in the U.S., um, the first one with um, Burton Cummings on vocals. Um, almost wasn't released as a single. Um, guys in the group didn't want to put a ballad out. They're a rock band. They wanted a rock single. Um, but it did come out, obviously, in a few year, or a few months later, you get this. Um, Junior plays it pretty straight. Um just adds a sax to it, which, um, I mean, he's a sax player, so that makes sense. Um, the rest of it's pretty close to what the Guess Who had. Um, the rhythm section's a little bit punchier. I'm not sure if the All-Stars actually played on this or it was the Funk Brothers, but 
whoever did it was better than Jim Kale and Randy Peterson of the Guess Who. <laughs> the one disappointing thing is that they um, swapped out the electric piano from the original with a standard piano. Um, the electric piano was like the best part of the Guess Who version. And for the record, um, Burton Cummings played a Horner pianet in that version. Yeah, but you're all, right. That's all the... in all, what? You're right. That is the best part of uh, the Guess Who version. I agree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but all in all, um, this is a pretty good cover, and it was actually one of his biggest hits on the pop charts. And like you mentioned with the Friendship Train, I did find like a really early um, Soul Train clip of this, of them playing this one. So um, that was also pretty interesting to watch. And yeah. it was on like their like very like super early set to so anytime uh, i can find new soul train clips it's a welcome development love soul train clips they're awesome oh yeah yeah i wish yeah, it was exactly. on, i think it's on in syndication on wgn which i do not get but i would watch soul train like if it came on right now like i would interrupt our podcast and be like sorry soul train's on i'm watching it <laughs> okay okay all right we're gonna have to re-record later because i gotta go <laughs> jump in the soul train line and i'm not even making fun of it i actually really enjoy it i think it's just uh fun to watch plus the music on it is great yeah yeah i do right. remember watching soul train when i was little but i didn't get it you know i mean you know it's like see uh, i i just remember like the intro coming on like the it's soul train it, 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 at least in one of the places we lived in it was on right after casey Kasem's uh top 10 show a lot of people oh okay okay casey Kasem had the top 10 tv show as well as the radio top 40 so um and or it came on after bandstand you know one or the other so um yeah i don't remember who i would have even seen on it but you know and i didn't watch it religiously but i do remember watching it sometimes and it was like okay what's the difference and it was kind of cool it's kind of like the uh <laughs> the what the world needs now uh clips that um that tom what's his face recorded yeah <laughs> it's like i would see it when i was little and be like what's the difference between this and american bandstand it's just a bunch of songs i didn't like make the you know the black and white connection when i was little uh, oh yeah 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 exactly what is <laughs> i'm trying to think that from that song what is biggery? oh god i, what I, I forget what biggery that's right <laughs> what is bigger yeah yeah <laughs> But anyway, um, number 15 for you is Blood, Sweat, and Tears with And When I Die. Skip, die in a fire. Okay. Not doing Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I don't like Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So I'd rather do this next song, but I'm kind of glad you have it. Number 14 is La 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 If I Had You by Bobby Sherman. This is a skip for me. Um, not a not a fan of Bobby Sherman. No, so I'm Bobby Sherman him. is considered bubblegum too, and I ain't buying that. That's no, I don't agree. No, no, I, yeah, I don't buy that. See, one that's either. where I mean, like he's... getting back to our earlier conversation, like on "Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes," it's nowhere. It's not Bobby Sherman level of cheesy at all, but it's closer to Partridge Family ish. I guess Partridge Family could be considered bubblegum too. Never mind. I don't know where I'm going. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
But um, 13 for you is Stevie Wonder with Yester Me, Yester You, Yesterday. Yeah, you know, I love Stevie. I really do. I don't know. How many Stevie Wonder songs is this for us now? Like the 20th or something? Um, it's more than that. I mean, it? we're getting up to like 40 Jeez. with him. Um, this has never been a favorite of mine, though. It, the strings on it get on my nerves because I like strings in songs but not when the strings attempt to be like the lead instrument. And these strings kind of try to fit the mood of what Stevie is singing because they don't like, like take, for example, the strings you hear in uh, When Will I See You Again. They're background strings. They're there to accent the song. These strings are almost competing with Stevie in the song, and I think it screws the song up. So the strings in this get on my nerves. And not only that, but... The, t- the song title just comes off as like a premise that seemed like a good idea at the time. Like Stevie had it in his head. It's like, yester me, yester you, yesterday. Man, that's a great idea for a song. And then he writes it, they record it. And then like 10 minutes after you finish it, it seems like really corny. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's yester me, yester you. That's hard to, if anybody else recorded, like say, Say uh, the Ohio Express recorded it. I know it's not that style, but you'd laugh at that. Like, let's say you switched. <laughs> let's say Stevie did Yummy, 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 and they did Yester Me, Yester You, Yesterday. You'd think Yester Me, Yester You, Yesterday was stupid, and Stevie would get defended for Yummy, 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 I've Got Love in My Tummy. I, I, w- I would actually love to hear a Stevie Wonder version of that song. It'd probably be pretty good. Probably would be pretty good. I mean, it's Stevie Wonder. But so anyway, this is on the My Sharia More album. Just stick with the title track. It's like 10,000 times better than this song. <laughs> okay. A rare misstep from Stevie. I, I, you know, I love Stevie Wonder, but this, this, uh, this song doesn't do it for me. I, I don't mind this one as much as you do. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not one of his best 60 songs but it's not bad i mean he sings I mean, good on it i mean i'm you know i mean he always does i just i don't know just it's it's not it just it does it it insists upon itself okay <laughs> just, okay just stealing that from family guy um <laughs> anyway next up for you number 12 eli's coming uh by three dog night i'm skipping this one um actually this is the second time we've skipped this songwriter. It was written by the same person who wrote And When I Die, um, Laura Nero. And so. I didn't even mention that Laura Nero also wrote Wedding Bell Blues. Or, or... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, huh. so she's all over yep. this chart, actually. And yep. we just blew her off. We decided to focus on other female artists. We don't have right. enough room. Our glass ceiling only goes so high because we're sexist, Silver Falcon and Blue Hawk are. Yes, yes. So we're, we, we, our hand goes out to some female artists, and our hand is taken away from others. And in this case, Laura Nairo gets dissed. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very, very talented songwriter. So, yeah. Uh, but number 11 for you is Ferrante and Teicher with Midnight Cowboy. Easy listening music. You know, I've already defended Bubblegum, so I might as well go down another rat hole and defend another form of music that's oft maligned. Uh, one, throughout my whole life, you hear the term easy listening, and it's a pejorative term. I mean, nobody wants to be, it's like a kiss of death. You don't want to be called easy listening music. 
but the kind of music that like Ferrante and, and Teicher made though is it's instrumental which you know you don't have many artists these days who are instrumental artists basically I mean that kind of died out in the 60s and so they were of that but I don't know I kind of think some not all but some easy listening music if it's original enough could be kind of cool i mean you know you get some dissonant voices and like these weird dissonant background vocals that you know you can barely understand what they're saying you get kind of the far off distant guitar i mean really one of my favorite artists ennio morricone really basically made easy listening music in the 60s a lot of the time not all the time but he definitely worked in that realm and so maybe through him, I kind of entered the back door and was like, oh, yeah, some of this stuff is OK. It's kind of loungy. And I sort of dig that. Um, their version of Midnight Cowboy, though, was not the one used in the movie. Um, John Barry, who was hotter than a pistol at this point as a um, composer, uh, did the movie version. And it's um, th- his version is harmonica based in the movie. Um, uh-huh. Ferrante and Teicher's is more easy listening it does i don't think it has harmonica in it um but john barry was on quite a roll at the time at the same time this was out his best james bond soundtrack on her majesty's secret service would also have been out and that is one of the best scores of any kind of movie i've ever heard that is highly recommended to go listen to because it is awesome yeah so Midnight Cowboy, though, uh, very famous. Uh, Everybody's Talking is the famous uh, song off of this by Nielsen. But um, Midnight Cowboy, you know, I think we mentioned Midnight Cowboy before. Maybe we had Everybody's Talking on another chart, but uh, we did. Yeah. You know, it's I, I actually saw it for the first time like a year or two ago. It was it was, it was better than I don't I don't know what I was expecting out of Midnight Cowboy. It was all right. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, it's okay. I, I wouldn't say it is like one of the greatest movies ever, though. I mean, it's, no, I wouldn't say that. It's a good movie, though. It was. I'm. It was probably a you had to be there movie because it would have been pretty groundbreaking by the standard of its time, but because it broke yeah. ground that other yeah. movies have mined since, for people our age, it probably doesn't have the same impact. That's probably the fairest way to put it. Yeah, you're probably right about that. Yeah. That's why I'm the Blue Hawk. Anyway, <laughs> number number 10 is uh, a song I like. Take a Letter Maria by R.B. Greaves. This was R.B. Greaves' one big hit. I was actually surprised that he had um, one more hit after this, which was a cover of There's Always Something There to Remind Me, but no one remembers that one, so he's kind of seen as a one-hit wonder. He was a nephew of Sam Cooke, and after looking at some of the videos for this, uh, there is a definite resemblance between the two of them. Um, he started his career out in um, the UK and had a couple hits there, but this was his first single back in the US. And I'm assuming because of the Sam Cooke connection, um, he got a lot of attention for that. And because of that, the big guy at Atlantic Records, Matt Erdogan, took special interest in this single. Um, he actually produced this one, which was something he did like in the early days of Atlantic Records, but was more or less retired from doing at this point. But he did like get, go back into the studio for R.B. Greaves and the Muscle Shoals rhythm sections on this, which was also pretty common for stuff on Atlantic. 
And the song is about a guy who's um, pretty devoted to his career. And because of that, he's neglected his wife and she's run off with another guy. So he's dictating a letter to his secretary saying that he's dumping her. And in the last verse, he asks the secretary out. And there wasn't a sequel to this song, so we never found out if she said yes or not. I mean, we're just assuming that Maria says, okay, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. But who knows? Hey, man, I mean, it, was, maybe, it was the 60s. This is the Madman era. Exactly. So, I mean, it probably did happen. Probably some sexual harassment in there, too. No, no, it was the 60s. They didn't have to worry about that shit. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, it probably did happen, but the guy probably didn't get in any trouble for it. Yeah, that's my point, yeah. But this was also kind of writing like a cultural trend at the time, because, I mean, in the late 60s, I mean, divorce rates were going up and states were relaxing their divorce laws. So, I mean, the year before this, he had D-I-V-O-R-C-E by Tammy Wynette, which is another big hit kind of theme on this. So this was kind of writing the trend of that. But um, you had the thing where you mentioned that, like, you always thought Venus was sung by a guy. I always thought that R.B. Greaves was Hispanic because he's kind of doing, like, a um, Jose Feliciano-type thing with his voice, and there's, like, mariachi horns in the chorus, so... I always kind of assume that he was Hispanic, but he's not. I never assumed so. that, but you're right. It does delve into um, kind of what would have been considered. It's not Latino music, but has you're right. It has a little bit of the Latino flair to it uh, in it. I, I didn't know he was related to Sam Cooke, um, but now that you mention it, now I can hear nothing but Sam Cooke when I hear this song. So um, or, you know, something close to Sam Cooke. Um, I love this song because the electric uh, piano on this is glorious. I love it. It is. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. <clears throat> and the horns and all that, the whole Muscle Shoals thing is, uh, I'm a big fan of the Muscle Shoals wing of of kind of R&B and soul. So um, very cool song, very of its time. And no, I don't condone sexual harassment in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> right. kind of yeah exactly he's, he's probably like when he like asked her out he probably read like uh coffee tea or me or something like that before he did it and <laughs> was like hey i'm gonna ask out my secretary it's the swing in 60s the swing in 70s are gonna be even better hey, hey. <laughs> yeah yeah probably i've always i've never read one word of coffee tea or me but i've heard about it and I always wanted to make an ironic version of what I think that movie would be about, even though I've never read it. So I have no clue what it's actually about. Like, right, let's make yeah. fun of sexual harassment by making a movie about what people thought when that book was written. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, making fun of the people who, you know, make fun of the era, basically, is what I'm driving at. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like yeah. Anchorman. Anchorman has probably captured the spirit of what I'm getting at so yeah 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 you're right about that it was yeah. basically a spoof you know a spoof of 70s attitudes towards women that's what i'm driving at in other words it's already okay. been done so i should probably put this dream to bed <laughs> okay okay <laughs> uh but 
number nine for us, um, or for you, actually, um, Led Zeppelin with a whole lot of love. Yeah, well, you know, Led Zeppelin has long been one, one of my Mount Rushmore groups. Um, but I really don't like this song at all. I have never really never <laughs> been a fan of this song ever. I don't listen to it. Led Zeppelin 2, which is what this is from, is a great album. Um, and the only thing that drags it down in my estimation is this and Ramble On, which is also on Led Zeppelin 2, which sucks. But um, I have I, I, I don't even have this liked on Spotify. And bear in mind, I have every stupid, obscure alternate version of like, say, Night Flight from Physical Graffiti or some obscure album track like that liked on Spotify. So this doesn't even get that. So I just, I don't know. I've just never, I've never, it's never grabbed me. I mean, I understand the riff was, you know, hard by the standard of its time, but there's better songs on Led Zeppelin too. If there was any justice in the world, either uh, what what is and what should never be should have been the hit that this was, which is a much, much better song. Um, however. I don't know about that. Oh, you're terrible. We're going to fight. Silver Falcon versus Blue Hawk. Anyway. Um, it's a crying shame. This is actually their biggest American hit ever by far. Um, this got up to number four. Um, although there is some justice in the world because Misty Mountain Hop, which is my favorite Led Zeppelin song, um, was a co number 15 with rock and roll, probably more rock and roll, but, um, as their (laughs) second biggest American chart hit. So, um, so I forgive America for making a whole lot of love their biggest hit i don't like a whole lot of love i don't really like immigrant song either which was another big hit uh, <laughs> although i do like immigrant song better than this um yeah i don't know just never did see i i do like immigrant song better than this one i i'd say that heartbreaker was probably the best song heartbreaker is also too, i yeah heartbreaker is a good song too um much better than a whole lot of, every other song on led zeppelin too apart from maybe ramble on is better than whole lot of love, including um, the uh, stupid drum solo song that's on it. Um, Moby Dick. Dick. Yeah. So I, I like Moby Dick actually, but I like the beginning of Moby Dick where there, it's not a drum solo basically. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Led Zeppelin two would be, I don't know where I'd rate that in the Led Zeppelin albums. I'd probably put it below. I'd put it below one. I'd put it below four. I'd put it below Houses of the Holy. I'd definitely put it below Physical Graffiti. It'd probably be, it would be, it would be after that. It's not, it's better than Presence. It's better than three. And it's slightly better than In Through the Outdoor. So, and I don't count Coda. That doesn't count. So, right. Those are my Led Zeppelin. What 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 about Page Plant? <laughs> page Plant. I'm not including Page Plant nor any solo projects. So, yeah, nor yeah, the Yardbirds that, that... or anybody else. What what about Bonham? <laughs> not Bonham either. Nor the Black Crows and Jimmy Page. Although that that actually is relatively entertaining. Um, nor Jimmy Page with. Um, Oh, who did he record with? I'm not counting Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. So that would be really good to go. That'd be interesting to go watch. I know they haven't toured in ages, but um, right. Uh, the Honey Drippers count though. They're number six on the Led Zeppelin. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, 
Anyway, next up for you, number eight. This is our gateway drug into the 70s. I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. This is where it all started for the Jacksons. Probably the best debut single ever. And yeah, yeah, I know that they put out a a single on like a little label and Gary before this one. Uh, Go ahead. But this was... But this was the first one that um, was released to wide audience, and it's pretty much perfect. I mean, it's has a really great driving beat, an amazing lead vocal by a then 10-year-old Michael Jackson, um, great interplay between uh, Michael and Jermaine towards the end of the song. I mean, it's just amazing. It doesn't really get much better than this. And the sound of this has been imitated so many times over the years, like the Osmonds, um, New Edition, Hanson, and so on. Um, but it wasn't written with them in mind. Um, it was originally supposed to go to Glass Night and the Pips. And I can almost imagine them doing it, but um, Barry thought that it would be perfect for the Jackson 5, who were kind of his pet project at the time. And he actually, um, they were introduced as being like discovered by Diana Ross, but apparently Gladys Knight was the one who actually discovered them. So Barry Gordy just kind of like screwed her out of that too. Um, he was kind of doing it to promote like Diana as herself. Oh yeah, well, she was about to leave the Supremes we'll, at the we'll time. We'll be talking about that a little later. Yep, but um, despite the fact that this was on Motown, it doesn't feature the Funk Brothers. Um, the members of the Wrecking Crew were playing on this, and this might shock you, but. Tito and Jermaine did not play guitar and bass on this one. It was uh, Louis Shelton and Wilton Felder. But um, I checked out the Ed Sullivan performance of this, which was great. But it also leads to the YouTube comment of the week, which was um, from Matt Pless, who's actually a folk singer. Um, Actually found like a concert of this guy on YouTube. But he said... One time I was tripping acid with my buddy. It was his first time. We were listening to I Want You Back. And as we were coming up, my buddy goes, I want to apologize to God. And I was like, um, it's debatable that if God made his presence known, it was through the voice of a young Michael Jackson. So get up and dance for forgiveness. <laughs> okay. But I mean, this is this is an awesome song. So, it is an awesome yeah. song. But I'm sitting here trying to think of debut singles, and I have two that I could argue with. I'm not going to argue with you that this is a great debut single because it is. But um, the one I've always thought was the best debut single by a band was "I Can't Explain" by the Who, um, which similar to the Jackson, that's pretty good. Jackson yeah. Five was they had other singles they released under a different name, but it was the first, you know, the first big one. And Rico Suave by Gerardo. I mean, you know, <laughs> what the hell are we talking about here? No, I, yeah. I, I'd go with The Who, but I, I'm not going to argue that I'm going to say you're wrong. I mean, it is a great debut single. I like ABC better, obviously not a debut single, but um, they, they, they're run from um, – I want you back to ABC to the love you save. And I know a lot, the, all three of those songs sound similar, but they're all just explosively good. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, I mean, they run like just an amazing run, like in 69 and 70. And 
I mean, it is it is amazing that it's like an eleven year old or ten year old singing this stuff. Yep. Let's see, but number seven for you, we have the Beatles with "Come Together" and something. <laughs> I got fixated when I did this. I got fixated on "Come Together," and I prepared absolutely nothing on something, which is a song I really like a lot. And <laughs> you know, so I'll talk about that briefly. I'll just ad-lib it something was george written by george harrison um abbey road was kind of the flowering of george harrison in terms of respect from his bandmates respect in terms of hits from the public uh george harrison had written plenty of good songs before this but um between something and here comes the sun also on abbey road um really he had the biggest hits off of abbey road and uh, both of those songs are very memorable and something is pretty much a perfect Beatles song. I mean, it, it floats into my, I don't have a distinct favorite Beatles song and it floats in there once in a while as one of my favorite Beatles songs. Like it, like it, it's like this weird, I have this rotation of my favorite Beatles songs and, and here comes the sun is in that rotation as well. Um, so something is in there because it's just, I mean, it's a perfect song. Um, yeah. But I got fixated on Come Together. And I have to ask, do you like Come Together? No, not really. I mean, I'd say it's probably my least favorite song on Abbey Road. I, I alternately do like this song and I alternately don't. Uh, it's it's a weird song to start an album. But on the other hand, like I've listened to Abbey Road so many times, I can't really think of what else you'd start the album with. So it sort of strikes the right mood for it, maybe because we're just used to it. Um, it is a yeah. weird song to start an album because it it's mid-tempo. Um, it, it, the lyrics are nonsensical and were intended to be that way. They don't mean anything. Um, I, I will say the guitar in the choruses where it ramps up is really great. Um, and so is the electric piano when it jumps in. And the drums in it are good, but the rest of it is just self-indulgent nonsense, basically. Um, however, it gives us a chance to trash talk our, one of our favorite baseball teams because the Chicago Cubs this this coming season, I don't know if you saw this, uh, for 2020, their slogan is Cub Together. Did you hear about that? Oh, Cub Together? Cub Together, yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God. So I hope the Cubs finish last because they all got walrus gumboot. That's my hope. <laughs> Let's see. Well, since you were talking about opening tracks for Abbey Road, I, I, I think it would have been funny if they kicked it off with Maxwell Silver Hammer. Um, I mean, it's, I could see it. It's like the the least appropriate one. <laughs> Maybe Octopus's Garden, too. I, both of those make more sense, though, as, as opening tracks than Come Together does, I think. I mean, it depends yeah, on how you think, so. what, you, what yeah. you think an opening track should be. I mean, there's no definition of it, but um, it's, you know, kind of a, let's start, let's start downcast. I mean, Abbey Road has its, you know, it's a great album, but um, it is stylistically kind of a weird album. They probably should have started with Here Comes the Sun. That's probably what they should have opened it with. That opens, that's the B, yeah. that opens the B yeah. side, doesn't it? it? It does. Either that or it closes out the A side. I, I forget which one. See, there used to be a reason for putting songs, like, to lead the albums off because 
if you know how records are actually made and believe me, I'm an expert because I've made a lot of records in my life, but, um, but I do live here in Terre Haute where they produced a shit ton. One of the main record plants in the United States used to be here. So I've done some read about it to know about the plant that's, you know, it's still here, but they make CDs. Um, They used to put the better songs at the front of the album because the um, fidelity of the album drops off the quality of the, recording drops off as you get further down the uh, groove so you Hmm. didn't necessarily want to put your best song at the end of the album now that that probably faded out by this point that was true probably earlier on when they produced lps but um you know so for what it's worth which probably Hmm. nothing so right yeah anyway next up (laughs) for you number six is holly holy by neil diamond See, at our last episode, I talked about a song that was kind of a forgotten smash. And this one falls into that category. I don't remember ever hearing this one on the radio. Really? I've heard this on the radio a lot. I, I haven't. Well, but, d- damn it. But this. I didn't know that Venus was sung by a female, so we're both idiots. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but this was the follow-up to Sweet Caroline, which obviously everyone has heard hundreds of times. And, um, I mean, everyone knows that one. And this one was almost as big of a hit as Sweet Caroline was at the time. Uh, but it's kind of vanished off the face of the earth. I mean, you dispute that. Dispute but it, that. to me it has. <laughs> but um, you can't, I mean, you can't sing ba-da-da or so good so good along to this one so i mean that's probably why it's like kind of disappeared but um somebody should get this out of the public consciousness again i mean start playing it at baseball games get people to sing along to the sing 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 part or get them to imitate neil's yeah in the chorus and it'll be just as big again i mean maybe that should be our project for next year. Okay. Uh, just get to, to get people into this song. Okay, Silver Falcon, <laughs> but... you're, you're flying too close to the sun right now. <laughs> okay, okay. But anyway, um, Neil said that the song was supposed to create a religious experience between a man and a woman as opposed to an experience between man and God. And I'm just going to take his word for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, there's always one song on my list every week that gets stuck in my head and this was the one for this week and um, it's not that great so um, I kind of wish it was like one of the other songs that I had here. yeah just put Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show in your head instead or that, that's a much that's a much better Crackling song Rosen. and it's also from 1969 yeah. so yeah I, I, <laughs> so I it's funny so, it's funny you mentioned sweet caroline because back when I, when i had uh satellite radio in the in the mid 2000s when it was still xm and sirius were separate entities and xm was really good they had some good independent shows and one of them was a charlie steiner baseball show and i i wasn't a huge fan of charlie steiner when he was on espn i mean you know to the degree i had an opinion on him but he won me over when he opened his show one day He's, and this must have been when the red Sox were in the world series or something and he's like, man, I'm so sick and tired of hearing Sweet Caroline. Why couldn't they pick a good Neil Diamond song to sing at, at games? And he brought up uh, Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show as his nomination. I was like, all right, Charlie Steiner's cooler than I thought. 
see charlie steiner i i don't know if you've seen like the bg's documentary that's out I haven't right seen now it but but charlie steiner is in that um in like the disco demolition part because he's he was a radio dj back then and he was like mentioning that he was just like so sick of like playing the Bee Gees constantly. Yeah, a he's a Valley. So he, kind he's of... a Missouri Valley Conference legend because he went to Bradley. Bradley turned turned out a bunch of national level broadcasters in that period. But um, so yeah, for yeah. But I, I didn't realize he was <laughs> uh, had a opinion on disco demolition. Which what a segue! Yeah, because the yeah. next song has to do with that very team. Exactly. At number five, we have Steam with na 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 na, hey hey hey, goodbye. Yeah, I get to make so. references to both Chicago baseball teams in this. That the this was a number one hit, so I don't want to overrate this too much. But this came into the eye of probably people my age to some degree when um, Nancy Faust, who was the organist for the White Sox um, in the late seventies and beyond. Um, would play this when the when the 1977 Southside Hitmen, uh, one of only two teams in the 70s that were worth a shit for the White Sox, uh, but a very famous team, very popular among White Sox fans. She would play this at the end of games um, when it was apparent that the White Sox were going to win. I remember seeing George Brett talking about this because they were the White Sox battled the Royals for the AL West in 77, uh, which was the year before I started following baseball. But he was. The Royals got swept at Comiskey Park. This was when Bill Veck owned the team for the second time, and they had the shower out in the outfield at Comiskey Park and all kinds of crazy-ass promotions leading eventually to the disco demolition in 1979. But So they brought this song back into the public consciousness in the late 70s, and it became basically a jock jam because after that, people – started singing it at their own games, including I remember singing it in high school at, when I went to games and all that. It was funny, though. Our dad hated this song, and he hated hearing it in the context of basically shit-talking the other team. He thought it was, he, he's, he thought it was disrespectful, which it is. Maybe he has a history with this song that I don't know about that led him to kind of but yeah yeah i remember hearing it you like you'd hear it in games and he would get like he probably heard it more in you know basketball games Uh, it would be hard to hear that at a baseball game but he would hear it and he'd get like he'd get irritated by it like oh that's shouldn't be doing (laughs) that so and i was like that's like it's kind of cool you know i mean you know fuck them so um (laughs) steam though is one of those famed fake bands that you were talking about uh that were relatively prevalent in the late 60s and early 70s um they were not a real band they were basically a function of the songwriter um of this song um this is considered to be bubblegum too and i don't i don't agree i don't think this is bubblegum at all it just doesn't sound yeah me either i I know it's in that bubblegum realm where it's by a fake band but i i've never felt like this was bubblegum so but this was only two weeks off of being the number one song in the land so we went all the way to the moon and then the astronauts get to come back and na 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 hey hey good kiss them goodbye is the number one song. What the hell is the world coming to? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I just I remember that onion, the onion man on the moon thing. And one of the uh-huh. one of the sub headlines, something like, We could get a man to the moon, but we can't um like 
beat Red China or something. I'm afraid it's more fun. <laughs> something like that. But yeah. It cracked me up. <laughs> anyway, number four for you is Down on the Corner slash Fortunate Son by Credence Clearwater Revival. Um, 1969 was a year of CCR. Um, they had three top 10 albums, uh, four top five hits, uh, three of which peaked at number two. Um, they couldn't get to the top for some reason. So it's not really s- surprising that they're on here. Um, this was a double I- A side, obviously. Um, Down on the Corner was essentially the title track of the Willie and the Poor Boys album. It's just a description of a jug band called Willie and the Poor Boys playing on the street corner for change. And thanks to the Beastie Boys, I always kind of sing, um, what's the time? It's time to get ill over the opening riff because they sampled that <laughs> in that song. Okay, But um, the other song, uh, Fortunate Son, has turned into one of the biggest 60s cliches. I mean, if you're going to make a movie or a TV show that takes place in the Vietnam War, um, you're going to put this song somewhere on the soundtrack. I mean, it's a law. It has to be on there. And um, it was written about how when there is a war, the poorest people end up paying the biggest price. And the sons of the people who decide to go to war basically come away unscathed, something which didn't exactly stop with Vietnam. And like another uh, Vietnam-themed hit that came out after this, Born in the USA, it's also been misinterpreted as being like a patriotic flag-waving anthem yeah, by some people. Completely the opposite. Um, right. Yeah, and there was like a Wrangler ad that came out a few years ago where they just cut the song off after the line, some people were born made to wave the flag, ooh, that red, white, and blue. And like Trump used it at his rallies, even though he's like the exact person that John Fogarty was railing against and I think he actually put out a cease and desist letter for that. But um, it's, I mean, it's annoying that it did become a cliche because it is one of their better songs. Yeah, it's a great song. And I mean, and I mean, because you hear it all the time, I mean, I never like pick this one out to play, but I mean, it is amazing. And um, these actually charted separately. Um, While this was on the charts, um, Billboard changed their rules for double-sided singles. Um, so Fortunate Son charted separately on its own, and it made it up to 14. And Down on the Corner was combined with Fortunate Son, and it was done, like, in the 30s. Um, but, like, at the end of November 69, Billboard decided to change it and combine the two, and that's what's on the charts here, obviously. But, I mean, both of these are great songs. I mean, you can't really go wrong with CCR. And, I mean, um, they were, like, in the middle of an amazing run at this time. I wonder if all the, like, misuse of Fortunate Son is, like, some sort of karmic punishment for Fogarty for being such a prick to all his other, like, bandmates and stuff. It's like, well, we're going to have you write (laughs) write one of the great anti-patriotic songs of all time, only your ironic punishment is going to be that all kinds of assholes who thinks it is a patriotic song are going to misuse it while you're still alive to hear it. Could be, could be. Somewhere Satan yeah. is working through Wrangler and Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and like Forrest Gump. Yeah, Forrest too. Gump, right. 
<laughs> but um, number three for you, we have BJ Thomas with raindrops keep falling on my head. Future's all yours, you lousy bicycle. Actually, that's not the correct scene <laughs> that goes with this, but it is from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. This song was actually used when um, the beautiful Catherine Ross, who is beautiful, by the way, uh, rides on the handlebars of Paul Newman's bike. And it's one of the many montage scenes from uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They loved a montage in that movie. Um, this yep. song was ubiquitous for years. I mean, you were hearing this song on the radio when I was little, like 10 years later. Um, but it does give us the chance to delve into the Bacharach soundtrack to this film, which has always fascinated me because it's so tonally weird for what the actual movie's about. Um, The one I've always obsessed over is the music to the bank robbing montage when by the, when late in the movie, when they've already gone to Bolivia and it's called South American getaway. And it sounds like, like a peak Bacharach um, sing, you know, uh, cut from that period combined with Sergio Mendez. So I don't know if that was their attempt to make it South American or what, even though Sergio Mendez was not from Bolivia, um, which it's cool, but it has completely incongruent to what the, you know, the action on the film is taking place. Like there's this yeah, ambush yeah. the Bolivian yeah. cop set up and it's like these uh, 60s studio singers. La, 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 la. It's like, what the fuck? What was George thinking with this? But it actually sort of makes that movie. It makes it, I like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I mean, it's considered to be one of the best Westerns. I don't know if it's one of the best Westerns. I guess maybe it is. I find it more entertaining um, on a different level than like sitting down to watching it as if it's like the searchers or something. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. With you got a lot of yeah, oddball yeah. mix of styles going on here. You got the montage where they're on the ship and it's basically old ragtime music. Uh, you got the Bacharach flourishes. You got B.J. Thomas. Um, that is a strange mix of of styles in Butch Cassidy and the Sun. It works. It's a good movie. I mean, um, Paul Newman. I mean, Paul Newman and Robert Redford deserve their fame for that movie. They really are good together in that. And right, yeah. So it's enjoy. And Catherine Ross is in it, who's hot, but and a good. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, right. so go listen to South American Getaway and you'll know what I'm talking about. La, okay, la, la, okay. La, la, la. Anyway, number 22 <laughs> for you is Leaving on a Jet Plane by Peter, Paul, and Mary. This was John Denver's bit, first big break. He wrote and originally performed this song. Um, his producer at the time, Milt O'Coon, was also the producer of Peter, Paul, and Mary. So he convinced them to cover this, and they recorded their version in 1967. Um, But it wasn't released as a single back then. I Dig Rock and Roll Music was a single from that album. Um, But uh, the song ended up coming back when um, the song was used in a series of ads for United Airlines. And one of these ads is on YouTube, and it shows a graduation ceremony for stewardesses. And an executive is placing... Um, the orange stewardess cap on uh, the heads of the stewardesses while their families weep tears of joy. It's very 60s. It's something that Don Draper would have come up with on Mad Men. But um, because of that ad campaign, Pierre Paul and Mary's record label just decided to 
put it out as a single to cash in on the ad campaign and it became their biggest hit. It was their only number one. Um, it finished one place ahead of Puff the Magic Dragon on the charts. What is Puff the Magic Dragon it's, about? Is that um it 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 is about a dragon. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. <Just> <laughs> but um this was also their very last hit. They broke up in nineteen seventy, but it was the start of things for John Denver. He started having his own hits after this. So Wow. Yeah. And now we know the rest of the story. Um, we're at number one here. We are. Here we Let's go. Let's do this, Silver Falcon. Um, Diana Ross and the Supremes um, someday will be together. Emphasis on Diana Ross, less so the Supremes. Um, yeah. Their 60s iteration was basically done for at this point. Mary Wilson and Cindy Birdsong, the other two Supremes at this point, on this uh, track. So huh. uh, the backstory of that is uh, the actual song itself was one, and one of the three songwriters was Johnny Bristol, who later had a solo hit in the mid-'70s with uh, uh, Hang On In There, Baby. Um, but he recorded it way back in 61 without chart success. And he, Bristol, was, he kind of hung around at, Mo, he, you know, he was helped out at Motown, and he was going to re-record this song with Junior Walker when Barry Gordy happened to hear the backing tracks that were going to be used um, for the Junior Walker song. And Barry Gordy had decided they were perfect for Diana Ross's first solo single, as he was already sort of planning her solo empire at this point, even though she was nominally still in the Supremes. Um, so Bristol decides to record it with uh, Diana Ross, but Diana had troubles with the song um, as they were recording it. So Bristol decided to harmonize with her uh, to get her on the right vocal track that he wanted her to get on. Um, unbeknownst to Bristol, he was also being recorded when he was doing this. So when you listen to this song and you hear the male vocalist jump in there once in a while with ad libs, that's actually Bristol uh, showing up in the final recording, trying to basically be a guide vocal in a way for uh, Diana Ross. But <laughs> it was it was never, ever, that part of the song was never, ever intended to be released, but it sounded good. Uh, and so they decided to keep it in the final mix. And and it was a good idea because, honestly, I think it does kind of help it take that song to a little bit of another level, um, having um, just those little bit of accents in there where Johnny Bristol um, inadvertently, in his case, jumps in. Um, the song, as recorded by Ross, has been subject to many different um, interpretations of what it's about. Uh, the obvious one being that it's, you know, a couple that's broken up and someday they'll be together. There's that. Um, another, and Diane Ross espouses this one, is that it's actually about civil rights, uh, kind of <laughs> a hopeful song uh, in terms of humanity just getting along better. Still another idea, and this one's probably dubious, but um, especially since it was written well before this, but is that it was Ross's goodbye message to the rest of the Supremes. Some people believe that. Um, mm -hmm. It was intended, as I mentioned, to be her first solo song, but Gordy, for some reason, decided to make it the last Supreme song uh, with Ross credited with the Supremes. So, um, so that's how it was released. And it had to suck to be Cindy Wilson or Mary Wilson and Cindy Birdsong because um, when the Supremes appeared on the Ed Sullivan show a couple days before this and December 21st, 
um, they appeared with her on the show, even though they didn't actually sing on the track at all. So they're there performing as if they're still the really the Supremes. Um, and the Supremes had a weird um, like end of Diana Ross's run. Their last concert was in early 1970, a couple weeks after this in Vegas. And uh, Jean, Jean Terrell, who replaced Diana Ross and the Supremes, literally came on stage uh, after Diana Ross sang her last song and was introduced as like the next, um, you know, member of the Supreme. So they literally took what's normally a metaphor of passing the torch to like a literal extreme. Like they literally did that. So (laughs) I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, Gordy is self-serving. We've heard that already in this chart with some other artists, um, whether they're trying to fight from getting under his thumb or whether he influenced something they were doing. And he was pretty much at the peak of his powers in terms of influence on artists, at this point, but his instincts were pretty dead on with this. Um, you know, this takes the sixties out in a very good note. This is, um, one of the <clears throat> quote unquote Supremes best songs, uh, that they ever did. And, um, it was the last, it was the last number one of the sixties and the first number one of the seventies as it still was number one in the first 1970 chart. So Really good song. I don't know if it's my favorite Supreme song, but it's in there. It's in the. It's near the top. It's good stuff. It is. It is. I mean, I'd rate it towards the top too. And actually, I think the Jackson Five performance that I talked about earlier was from the same show as one where the Supremes did this one because Diana Ross was actually in the audience. Yeah, uh, well, remember, it was the whole the way they marketed the Jackson five was Diana Ross presents the Jackson five. So that was part of the right that Barry Gordy did, even though she had fuck all to do with really any of it. But they did it. Yeah, as like, yeah. You know, they, they they wanted Barry Gordy liked having that, um, you know, symbiosis, I guess, between his recording artists, even though <laughs> a lot of them wanted to get out or <laughs> get their independence or whatever. So. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, because we're talking about Holland Dozier. Holland had already formed Hot Wax at this point. They'd start churning out hits right about this time, actually. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yep. but nonetheless, I mean, it's a great song. And um, probably if you count it as a Diana Ross solo song, it'd be right up there, too, among her solo ones. I don't know what my yeah, favorite I'd... Diana Ross solo song is. She's got a bunch of really good songs, so... Um, but this would be in the mix regardless. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. Even I actually, I, you know what I'd honestly probably pick, and this is hard to believe would be touch me in the morning. I think that's actually a great song. I I don't know if I'd go with that one. Even though it's got a, it's got a title that's very easy to make fun of. That'd probably be my favorite. That's a great song. It's got a great, it's it's all right, I guess. Fine. Silver Falcon. It's all about you now. <laughs> Blue Hawk doesn't get to express his opinion. Okay. Just because you fly higher than Hawks, because you're a falcon, you get to lord over everybody. <laughs> it's the same okay. argument we had when we were kids, when we were Silver Falcon and Blue Hawk. Yes, yeah. <laughs> We should probably state for the record that I made all this shit up for this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can like it. I like being Blue Hawk. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Create a whole backstory. I'm fine with it. All right. 
Anyway, what do you have uh, for us? The last podcast of 2020. What's what's on your mind? Um, let's see. Well, we're staying in the 60s, but we're going back a few years. We're going to January 2nd, 1965. All right. British invasion, huh? Sort of British invasion. There's some British invasion stuff on there, but there's other um, decent stuff on there as well. Um, also, kind of like a variety of different stuff. There is some easy listening on there, too. Good. So, is there any hip-hop? Yeah. Uh, no. No. <laughs> um, is there any dance hall? No, no. No dance hall reggae on that. Is there any rave music? No, like, no. On a serious note, is there any Herb Alpert on this? No, no. I, I don't think there is actually wow. any Herb yeah. Alpert on it. So, uh, um, <laughs> okay. I'll have to check it out. Uh, okay. All right. Well, this is Blue Hawk signing off. Silver Falcon, send us out. Um, see you in 1965, everybody. All right. Cool. Are you coming in or are you going to piss about all day? You're bloody finished. You know that, Jack. I'm bloody finished, you. <laughs> <laughs>